Amen. Our kids will be, go ahead and be dismissed at this time. Go up to Kids Church. I want to ask you as we begin, how many were here when the vehicle crashed into the building? One, two, three, four. Okay. All right. So we all know that it was a red vehicle, right? What color was it? It was dark. Dark. Black, black. Okay. And uh, it happened around Easter, right? Okay. Came through that wall, right? That wall. Happened 20 years ago, right? Okay, see, see, the, see what the power of a collective memory is. The power of a collective memory is different from the power of an individual memory. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight because last week we talked about how the, um, the Gospels had a stable core and that they were preached for decades before they were ever written down. And they were preached in churches primarily where the people who were in the churches, at least a good number of them, knew Jesus personally, had heard him minister, had seen the miracles. So it brings up an interesting question, though. Can we trust the memory of those people for those several decades? Could that have not been changed? Now, how many have ever heard of something called the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar. Okay, well, I think one. This was a group in the 1970s. They were a group of scholars that called themselves the Jesus Seminar. They put forth ideas that are still being used to attack the authenticity of the Bible. Now, it's interesting. Somebody last week put up a, a link to our service. And somebody commented saying, well, you know, the stories traveled around the Mediterranean. And they were finally written down in the Greek. And I thought, that's not how it happened at all. That's not how it happened at all. Um, the people who wrote them down in Greek were Jews. And like I said, Mark had a terrible command of Greek, but they, they, the church was expanding and this was their audience. Had the, had the church remained in Jerusalem, the New Testament, maybe the Gospels though, would have been written in Aramaic. But instead they were written in Greek because that was where the church was expanding to. Now, what this group of scholars did was they came up with ideas that are still being like that idea used to attack the Bible today. And, and, I, and I wrote down that no, actually the ideas that, or the gospel that was preached was preached in a stable form until it was written down by the disciples. And then the person responded by saying, uh, yes, but um, the, look at how many books didn't get included. It's interesting to see how many didn't get included. Yeah, it is. And they're interesting, all right. One has Jesus um, as a little boy turning his playmates into animals. Uh, one has Jesus striking dead uh, somebody who complained to his father, Joseph. They were written much, much later, and there was no ap apostolic authenticity attached at all to these letters. So whenever you see these programs banned from the Bible or whatever, they weren't banned. They were, it was simply they weren't accepted by people who were no dumber than you and I who would read that and go, no, that's, that's, we knew Jesus, this isn't who Jesus was. And the ones that were written much later, uh, I think it's Dan Brown who postulates there were some, someone, something like uh, several hundred gospels that were written that were not included. Well, that's true if you go to the year 800 A.D. By 800 A.D., yes, there were many, many stories that were written down. But obviously they weren't written down 
uh, by, by the apostles. All right, so here's some of the ideas that were put forward. Number one, that Jesus wasn't divine and that he did not claim to be. Secondly, that the Bible was not trustworthy because of the way it was written, because there was a delay, quote-unquote. And third, that the early church had distorted the real Jesus to the point we can no longer know who he really was. Now, one of the main arguments was the distortion of recorded scripture. And these are things that if you ever get into conversations with people about the Bible, these ideas are going to get regurgitated in one form or another. So it's, uh, it's great to know how do I counter this? How do I speak to these people? Because so often, how many have ever heard somebody say, well, you know, the Bibles we have, they're just translations of translations of translations. So how do we know? And it sounds good. It sounds interesting, right? It sounds like, well, you had these translations in the, in the early days and then somebody translated them. Um, somebody, for example, now some of the modern versions are translations of translations. Um, but most of the modern versions that we have today go back to the earliest manuscripts. And they're being translated from manuscripts that go back even before the manuscripts they had available, say, when they made the King, King James. So when you, when you came, put together the King James Version in 1611, you didn't have access. I saw a story last week that they had found a lost chapter of the Bible. Well, it wasn't really a lost chapter, but what it was, was it was on, on vellum and they had written, they had copied over, they basically erased and copied over because it had gotten worn down over time. You have some scribes and they're, they're using these, these uh, parchments and, and vellum and whatnot, papyrus. And so they tend to get worn down. And so they just erased it and recopied it. But what the scholars found was there was some interesting differences between what was there in the earliest manuscript of that and then the later one. Uh, one of the ones that I found most fascinating, and I, and I can't remember which fragment it was, maybe Aaron, you might even remember, but there was a recent discovery uh, of the chapter in John where they're asking Jesus, uh, it, not I, Lord, it's not I, Lord. And the way it's written, the way we read it, that they asked one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, think about that scene. Wouldn't that be a little weird? Like they're all around a table and one's going, it's not I, Lord. And then the next, it's not I, Lord. It's not I, Lord. <laughs> right? All 12 different guys asking that. But there was one little dot that was, that was found in an older manuscript that said, they asked one after another, but it indicates at the same time. And that's exactly what you would expect. That they're asking, not me, not me, not me, right? So, so there's kind of more of a chaotic scene to it. So... What we're finding as we go back to earlier and earlier manuscripts, lectionaries, fragments, whatnot, is we can be more confident in the Bible we have today than a brother or sister might have been two or three hundred years ago. As we talked about last week, it's nonsense to think that the Catholic Church, which didn't exist as the Catholic Church, the power of Rome did not really exist over the church until the era of Constantine. And we'll talk about this later in our, in our study. But Constantine was the first Roman emperor who was a Christian. And that's when power began to get mixed between the, the, the church leaders and the political leaders. And so that didn't happen until, until the 4th century. So it's ridiculous to think that this, this Catholic church, even in the 4th century, somehow got to all the churches in Alexandria, Africa, Asia Minor, all over Europe... Got, went, snuck into all of them, 
stole all their copies of the Bible, changed them in the same exact place, and changed them in such a way that modern scholars could not tell that they'd been changed. It's ridiculous and it's absurd. And yet that still gets gets put out there. And people will say, well, you know, the Catholic Church got a hold of the Bible and they changed it, so how can we really know what was in there? All right, so while though one could not say for sure that these things happened, isn't the possibility that they could have, um, that the early church could have forgotten some of the things, that the early church could have changed stuff, isn't that enough to cause us to doubt the reliability of the Bible? Now, I'm going to... When I designed this course, I designed each, each uh, part to be about an hour. So, excuse me I, if I talk a little fast. I know that's unusual for me. But if I, if, if I talk a little quickly, you understand why. But I want to make sure that we get to the salient points of this study. Because, like I said, as we go into future studies... ...and we're studying maybe the book of Hebrews... ...or we're studying the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians or whatnot... Uh, ...it's important that we understand... ...that I can trust what I'm reading. That it's not something that's open to debate... ...because what we have in this generation... ...is the idea that the Bible is sort of like a, a Chinese buffet menu... ...you know, a pick, pick two from this column, pick one from here. If I like it, then I agree with it. We all have to come to the understanding... ...that the Bible not only is reliable... ...but then also come to that point of decision where... ...do I submit myself and humble myself under the authority of the word... And so a study like this helps us to understand that God was working to preserve his word so that the church in the 21st century could know the truth about Jesus as well as the church in the first. All right, so let's talk about um, the oral traditions of the Jewish culture. What kind of recollections were being communicated? Now, if I ask you, who, who again was here when the, the vehicle? Okay. What did Jay preach the previous week? <laughs> that was probably the following week, right? <laughs> okay, so you remember the picture. See, so you remember the picture. Can you remember what he preached the following month? Okay. See, though, that's important. It's important. I'm not, I'm not knocking you. I don't remember what I preached a month ago. So, but... Um, the reason is, when we, when we get into these conversations about what was remembered and what was forgotten, we have to ask ourselves what kind of recollections were being communicated. All right, so it's easy, for example, to maybe, maybe uh, I remember when the Challenger uh, blew up. I was actually working in, in New Hampshire uh, when it happened. And I remember when that, when that occurred. And, of course, you know, Krista McAuliffe was... was uh, was on that, on that shuttle, from New, a teacher from New Hampshire. Now, many people might forget where they were when the Challenger blew up. Very few people who were alive then forget that it blew up, right? So you might, you might not remember, um, for example, if I ask you uh, the, about the, the young man who was at the wheel of the car, and I ask you how tall he was or what kind of clothes he was wearing, that you might not remember, but when we talk about things like the vehicle itself, when we talk about things like um, where, the, where the vehicle crashed, those are things that probably you're going to remember 
And those things are going to be burned into your head if you were, if you were here at this time. So if someone asked you what shirt you were wearing on September 11, 2001, you might not remember. But if somebody asked what happened that day, you certainly would. I remember um, why, September 10th, 2001, I was uh, watching Monday Night Football. And Ed McCaffrey, who if you watch football today, he's Christian McCaffrey's dad. Ed McCaffrey was a wide receiver for the Denver Broncos. And he went down the field and he caught a pass and he got hit, and his leg broke right in the middle, and so it, it went forward. His foot actually went forward like on a 45-degree angle. And I remember watching that and just thinking, boy, that's probably the worst you know, suffering I'm going to see for a while. And then, of course, the next morning, my wife woke me up with what was happening. So those, are, those kind of things gets now, would I have remembered that if not for September 11th? Probably not. I might have vaguely remembered an injury, but it got seared in my mind. It got seared in my long-term memory because of contrast. Because of the contrast with what I thought was just this terrible suffering of this one individual. And then the great suffering that I saw the next day. So the question is not, is it possible that the disciples got the location of a particular miracle wrong? Which wouldn't undermine the significance of the event. The question is, is it likely that the disciples got the actual miracle or teaching wrong? Understand, it was the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that caused these disciples to upend their lives. They completely up. What would it take for you to, complete, to quit your job like that? What would it take for you to quit your job, sell your house, change your life completely and radically what kind of event so the idea because the Bible says that the crowds were absolutely amazed at the teachings of Jesus because he taught as one who had authority the rabbis would always point to the authority of the Torah Jesus pointed to his own authority Jesus said things like I am the way the truth and the life C.S. Lewis said there are only three possibilities when it comes to Jesus you cannot make him a good moral teacher he cannot be simply a good moral teacher. Because if he was not who he claimed to be, he was an evil man. He could not be. He claimed to be the way, the truth, the life, and no one came to the Father but by him. He claimed to be the Son of Man, which was the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel, of the coming of Messiah. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He made these outlandish claims and C.S. Lewis said he is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He would either have to be, he said, crazy like someone who believed himself to be a poached egg. He would have to be a liar and be pretty much an evil person to say these things. Or he is Lord. And so these things were so seared into the minds of the disciples, they absolutely believed. Men from completely different backgrounds. You had guys that like, like Luke who were, was a physician, highly intelligent. You had guys that were blue-collar workers. You had guys that were kind of soldier of fortune uh, zealots. And all of them upended their lives to go and preach that Jesus did these things, said these things, and rose from the dead. And so these teachings were both new 
and radical. 33 times in the Gospels alone, we're told that the words and actions of Jesus were considered amazing. There were two responses that we see most commonly to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Amazement and offense. Amazement and offense. It said that either the crowds were amazed by him or that they were offended by him. It, there didn't seem to be any middle ground. No, the Bible never says, yeah, and a bunch of people were sort of apathetic and they, and they just said, hey, I can take it or leave it. They were either blown away and amazed or they were offended. Now, Hillel, who was a well-known contemporary Jewish rabbi of that time, says, the man who repeats his chapter a hundred times is not to be compared to the man who repeats it 101 times. And what we need to re remember is that we live in an age where we don't have to kind of hold on to stuff the way... How many remember cassette tapes, right? Records, right? Now you, you tell a young person about a CD and they're like, a what? A CD? Why would you have a CD, right? Because you don't have to, you don't have to carry physical copies of your music. You got your watch, you got your phone, you got your tablet, you got your computer. You've got all these different ways in which you can, you can grab hold of, uh, of your music. And you can store it all in the cloud and listen to it whenever and wherever you want. But for most of us, we had to carry it around with us. Now think about it this way. Until the age of the printing press, and even after, until books became very common... It was not likely that you would kind of consign information elsewhere. It would be retained. And that's how a student was judged as a good student. Could they repeat chapter and verse? There is a story of a rabbi who had a kind of a, 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 a method he would use with his students where he, would, he said, I would repeat the chapter 400 times in their presence. And if the student was slow to learn, I would repeat it another 400 times. That might be a bit of hyperbole, but it gives us an indication of how they learned. They learned by memorization. They learned by not... The, the, there was a saying that a good student is like a cistern that loses not a drop. And so they saw Jesus as a rabbi. And so even though they had not been considered candidates for the students of a rabbi, maybe even more so. Imagine... Imagine you're a young person and you get the chance to study at a very prestigious school. And your grades may, you know, maybe you were a good student, maybe a B plus, A minus, but, but you're going to go study at Oxford. You're going to go study at Harvard. You probably try a little harder. You don't want to look like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm falling back. I don't belong here. And so here's these disciples who were picked and they didn't seem to fit the mold. And so for most of us, what it, what it would have made us do is to say, you know what, I'm going to prove my worthiness as a student of this rabbi, especially once you began to be convinced that he was Messiah. I thought about this because all of us, if you have, if you have kids or friends that you've known for decades, grandkids, um, if you have any humility, you begin to realize that the longer you know somebody, the more they see how imperfect you are. Right, as a mom, as a dad, right? When you're when your kids three years old, when they're four years old, you know you can do no wrong. By the time they're about fifteen, you can do no right, right? And then, then a little little bit later comes along, and, and you kind of reach an equilibrium. 
But the older you get and the longer you know people, the more they see your flaws. What's interesting to me about Jesus is the longer they walk with him, the more they became convinced he was sinless. He was perfect. He was the son of God. And so they would have had more reason to listen to what he said and to absorb it, especially when Jesus would have taught the same parables repeatedly as he got to a different town. He'd repeat his parable and he'd, he'd speak this sermon. And so they would have heard it over and over and over. The Jewish culture was a memorizing culture. All right, like I said before, the memories were collective. Just like the memory of the, the car coming through. It's not likely that somebody could convince you that it came through that wall if you were here. It's not likely that somebody could convince you that the person was 20 years old who was driving it and he was drunk. That's not the story, right? I wasn't even here and I know the story. He was 12 years old. He was riding with two other people who were 13 and 14 year old. It was Thanksgiving weekend. He landed, the car landed right about here. It was a green Yukon, right? I've seen the pictures and I know it and I wasn't even here. And yet I can communicate that story almost as well as somebody who was here. Because let me tell you what, even when I was interviewing to this place, people were saying, did you hear the story about the car crash? I lived in Florida. I mean, it's like, I'm like, no offense, but enough weird stuff happens in Florida. We don't need to import our stories. Okay, so, but, but yeah, I mean, I heard that over it. And, I, and I, I was here for a weekend and I probably heard three or four different iterations of that story. And then I looked it up and I saw the details. And now, like I say, I can communicate it about as well as anybody who was here. And that's the power of a collective memory. If I came in here, especially from somebody who wasn't here and said, yeah, he was, he was 18 years old and he was drunk. No, he wasn't. It was a red car. No, it wasn't. It came through that wall. No, it didn't. I would be corrected. And so you had dozens and dozens and even hundreds of people in the Jerusalem church, which was the headquarters of the church. Remember, even if you, if you, if you read the story of Paul's conversion, even when Paul, even though Paul got his gospel directly from the Lord, when there was some question about whether what he was preaching lined up with what the apostles were preaching, he went to Jerusalem and he met with them. So the headquarters of the church, where the, the stamp of approval came from, was Jerusalem. And hundreds of people in that church had been to the sermons of Jesus. Many dozens of them would have seen the miracles of Jesus. And all of them would have known about the resurrection of Jesus. The repetition of the stories about Jesus and his teaching were both confirmed by eyewitnesses and would have caused them to be burned into the minds of those who told and who heard them. All right, so here's another argument that happens, and that is the dethronement of memory. Um, this is the idea that the disciples either forgot or were mistaken. And that's a fairly new argument. One of the things that I do when I'm, whenever I'm talking with somebody who, who is bringing up you know, well, we think that, that one, of the, one of the theories the Jesus Seminar came up with is called the swoon theory. And that's that Jesus didn't actually die. Uh, if you've seen The Princess Bride, you know, he was only mostly dead. Um, he was beaten. First, like we talked about last week, he was sleep deprived. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorn put on his head. 
He was whipped, by the way, not 39 times. I've seen those Facebook posts going around saying Jesus received 39 stripes. Jesus would have been whipped without them counting because the Jews weren't the ones. The only ones who counted were the Jews because they were limited to 40 lashes by the law. So they would stop at 39 unless they had miscounted and then they were in violation of the law. The Romans had no such restrictions. They beat him with a, a, a flagellum which had bits of bone and metal. He would have probably died even if they didn't put him on the cross. They hung him on the cross. Here's these professional Roman soldiers whose job is to kill people who certified that he was dead. And then just to make sure they shoved a spear into his side which pierced his heart and his pericardium. That's why it says blood and water flowed out. And then they placed him in a tomb. All right, so this idea that he just swooned is a recent idea. It has no basis in history. But people, one of the things that I, I counter him with is if there was a good theory that explained the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, besides what actually happened, they would have come up with it before 2023. <laughs> they would have come up with it before 1970. There was no good, there was no good theory. James Dunn writes, in the West, we simply take it for granted that the basis for a sound education is the ability to read and write. In a word, we are all children of Gutenberg. But were someone in the first century to have posited the idea that historical events could simply be forgotten or distorted, it would have been considered absolutely, completely unlikely. Because in every culture you go to, whether it's Native American culture, whether it was those living in what's now Russia, Asia, it's the same idea that our important history needs to be remembered and passed down. Going back to the ancient Egyptians. The problem is when you had things like hieroglyphics, uh, you didn't have the ability to communicate nuance. You could communicate the broad strokes of a story, but you couldn't communicate the great details of a story. Unless any, everyone understood and was on the same page, ...exactly what this hieroglyph means. Have anybody ever seen the movie Stargate? Uh, okay, a couple of people. James Spader plays, a, um, plays an Egyptian scholar... And, ...and they're talking about the translation... ...and he just goes up to the board and he's like... ...no, this is, they're still using budge, this is wrong, this is wrong. And, and what he's saying is, look, it's not that the, the translation itself is wrong... ...but this person doesn't get the nuance of what each particular hieroglyph means... And so as you were part of that culture, you would have been taught not only the big picture story, but also the details, what it, how, the, how it affected the community, what happened to the community after that. And so we have to remember that the Jewish culture was at the forefront of oral tradition. Why? Because they were always trying to be exterminated. How many of you have ever met a Philistine? Ever met an Amalekite? A Hittite? Who's ever met a Jew? Okay. That's the only culture from that time that still survived. And the reason it survived is because they were so, so particular about keeping their culture alive. One of the things about the Pharisees was that they were probably most in alignment with the theology of Jesus. They were simply applying it wrong. 
They were applying it wrong. The, 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 the Pharisees were the patriots of their day. They were the ones that we're going to protect our culture. We have these invaders and we are going to make sure that our culture survives and doesn't get corrupted and doesn't get perverted. You had people like the Hellenists and you had people like the Sadducees that were compromisers or full-on embracers of the, of the Greco-Roman culture. The Pharisees said, nope, we're going to keep our culture, the way we dress, the songs we sing. We're going to keep our priestly culture. We're going to keep our... our tradition in scripture going and we're going to make sure that gets, this gets passed along. And that's why when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written right around the time of Jesus, guess what? When you read Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's almost completely 100% the same as the book of Isaiah that we can pick up and read today. They were so concerned with keeping their culture. This was a culture that owed its existence to its ability to keep its traditions and teachings alive and unaltered, even in the face of tremendous opposition and amongst cultures that would seek to either assimilate or eradicate it. And even into the 20th century, the, the, what, the 20, what the Jews went through in the 20th century was not radically different from what they had been through in other centuries. So they were very, very consumed, concerned with keeping their culture. Um, secondly, Jesus' teaching were often spoken in rhythmic or otherwise memorable fashion, right? If I start singing, bye, bye, Miss American Pie, drove my... <laughs> Everybody remembers it's not a Ford, right? Everybody remembers it was at a levee. Why? Because when you remember something in song, it sticks in your brain. 80% of Jesus' teachings were given in some sort of poetic fashion, right? So I spent 17 years in, in what's known, what would be called the black church. Almost all of our churches in, in southern New England and were, were, were African-American, uh, Caribbean churches, inner city churches. And one of the things, it's like, remember, uh, if it don't fit, you must acquit, right? Why do we remember that? Because of the alliteration. It sticks in our brain. Now, it doesn't stand to reason. We know that the blood was covered, the glove was covered with blood. It could have easily shrunk. It could have gotten to the point where it did. But just saying to the jury, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right? I can't remember. Johnny, well, I can't remember. Cochran, Johnny Cochran. Everybody remembers the Kardashian, right? Robert Kardashian. <laughs> Poor Johnny Cochran. But, but just using that form made that line, of all the lines that were, were spoken in that trial... That's the one that remained in public consciousness just because of its rhythmic quality. And that's the way Jesus taught. Jesus spoke in stories and parables and, and he spoke poetically and he spoke in ways that would, would be sure to be locked into the mind. He liked to use, for example, alliteration, which was the repetition of the same sounds and letters. He liked to, to use puns and wordplays, parallels and rhymes. No one would likely forget the idea of a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. Nobody would, kind of, would forget these word pictures that Jesus painted. Um, one of the ways, for example, uh, the parable of, of the, the rich man and Lazarus. Now, one of the, it, it doesn't say, as many others do, then Jesus spoke this parable. But why do scholars know it was a parable? Because it begins, a certain rich man... And that's how several of Jesus' parables are, begin. 
But it's like saying today, once upon a time. Right? If I get up and say, once upon a time, you're going to, okay, so he's going to tell this story. He's going to tell a fairy tale. So when you begin a story with a certain rich man, Jesus is telling a parable, like the parable of the tenants and the vineyard and things like that. You'd begin with something like that, and it would catch the attention, and, and it would stick in people's brain. 80% of Jesus' teaching is cast in some type of poetic form. And you know what this means? That Jesus expected his hearers to both remember and communicate what he was teaching them and taught in such a way to facilitate that happening. One of the things that I point out to people a lot is when Jesus came to this earth, he left no children, he left no portfolio, he didn't create a business. There was only one thing that was on the earth after Jesus came that wasn't here when he was born. The church. That's it. It's the only thing that Jesus says he's returning for. He's returning for the church. So when somebody makes light of it, I don't need the church. The point is, you may not need the church, but Jesus needs you to be a part of the church. Because Jesus recognized that only by the church operating in community. Like I said, if you had a bunch of different people who heard about that accident and went on their way, it might be easier to kind of change some details. But in community, it becomes very difficult to do that. And so Jesus anticipated a church operating in community that would share the stories with others. Where we could kind of, maybe you meet somebody and maybe they have dissimilar interests to you, but you say, you know what, you would love to meet my, my friend Mark, right? Because, why? Because you guys would really hit it off. Because when you're in community, you begin to think about, oh, this person would click with this guy. We don't, we're not all going to click with one another. We're not all going to have the same. And we're not supposed to. That's the thing. I get really scared when I go into a church and everybody's got the same interests, reads the same Bibles, dresses the very same way, listens to the same music. I want some weird folk, man. I want some really, you know, kind of squares as they used to call them. I, I want all different kinds of people. I want people that are intellectuals. I want bikers. I want blue collar. I want white. Because that's what the church is supposed to look like. The church is supposed to be a place where we come together and worship God. And by doing that, we testify that our differences are not important. Our racial differences, how much we earn, where we live, that's not important. What's important is him. But secondly, we also, as we live and exist in community, we learn the stories together and we begin to think about who we can connect in the church with people that God connects with us. The, the teacher of righteousness who is the founder of the Qumran sect, which where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from, he had his teachings written down during his lifetime. Now Jesus' followers included those who would have been literate like Matthew, like the wealthy women who provided for him, like John, there is no reason to disbelieve that at least some of the disciples were actually taking notes. They would have been, as a rabbinical student would have done. If you were literate at the time of Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and you began to get convinced, this is Messiah. This is the one that the scriptures, you, you are going to start taking those things seriously. And if you're literate, you probably began to take notes. Now the conversion of so many elements make distortion 
incredibly unlikely. First of all, let's look at, look at these three and just only going to spend about five minutes on it. But first of all, the relationship of the disciples to their rabbi. Paul says, and when he's speaking of his credentials, he says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, why is this important? Gamaliel was such an important rabbi that even if Jesus hadn't have lived, we, the, the Jewish culture still would have been talking about him. He was the rabbi of that time period. And so for Paul to be his protege, for Paul to have sat at his feet, that was a mark of honor. So when Paul is talking about his credentials and he says, you know, uh, I'm a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and then he says, I consider all of this stuff refuse. He said, all of this stuff is unimportant. But to the Jew reading it, it wouldn't have been. And what the Jew who's reading it would have said is, boy, if all that stuff is completely insignificant, because all that stuff would have been what tribe you belong to, that was important. Remember, Paul was both a Roman citizen and a, and a Jewish citizen. Paul had all of these credentials. He spoke multiple languages, fluent, literate in them, very, very educated. And for him to say, this is an insignificant. I toss it out. I throw it away like refuse. That would have been shocking because to be chosen to be a disciple of a great rabbi was an incredible mark of honor. And so the relationship that Jesus had with his students would have been heightened by the fact that almost all of them would have seen, previously seen their chances of becoming a rabbinical student as nil. In other words, they would have started to realize, I hit the lottery in terms of, in terms of my esteem and my position in, in society. I hit the lottery because I was nobody. I was a tax collector. I was hated. If you were Matthew... The Jewish people hated you, saw you as a traitor. If you were uh, Andrew or Peter and you were fishermen, you were nobodies, right? You were on the bottom of the, the food chain in terms of you, you smelled bad and people didn't want to be around you. Nobody would have picked you to be a rabbinical student. And yet for Jesus to have chosen them, they must have felt like they hit the lottery. And so they would have absolutely felt it completely important to say... I'm going to remember everything my, my, my rabbi teaches me. Secondly, the multiple eyewitnesses. The majority of them would have still been alive, like we said last week, when the Gospels were written down. And so it was very important. If you were, if you were preaching to this church, right, and you were communicating the teachings of Jesus, it would have been important if you're trying to use them to encourage the people to make sure you were absolutely accurate because somebody would catch you. I know this as a preacher, and I was sharing this with a brother just yesterday. I was teaching a class. By the way, I was wrong last week. I said Vesuvius happened in 70. It was 79. So I just want to get that out there. And you know, <laughs> I know, I know, it's terrible. But the reason I bring that up is that I remember uh, teaching a class, and I can't even remember what we were talking about, and I was quoting the... Uh, 60, 1968 encyclical from the Catholic Church, uh, Pope John Paul, uh, or Pope Paul VI, uh, called the Humanae Vitae. And I was talking about its connection to Augustine. And somebody came up to me, or they emailed me after, and said, well, that wasn't actually Augustine. 
That was Augustine's disciple so-and-so. I don't know, Fred, I don't know what his name was. but you know, That was his disciple in the next generation after. And, and he really wanted to get into this discussion. And I said, look, if I go down that path, we're going to have a class of about five people. Because nobody's really going to be interested in those kind of, uh, of, of nuances. But it, but it taught me something. And that is, if you were a disciple preaching to a church where hundreds of people had seen Jesus teach, had seen him perform miracles, and you were going to use that teaching to encourage the people, you better get it right. Because if you get it wrong, your credibility is going to start going down the toilet. They're going to think, uh, this guy, who is this person who is changing what Jesus said? Even little details, like you say, hey, remember, we talked about the Gospel of John where... Um, Jesus is writing in the ground, but we don't know what he's writing. And that's exactly what you'd expect of an eyewitness because if somebody was over by that door and they were, I wouldn't be able to see what they were writing if there was sand, but I could see that they were writing something. And that's exactly what you'd expect from an eyewitness. If you begin to embellish and begin to say, well, Jesus was, was kneeling down writing on the ground and wearing a green shirt, and he wasn't wearing a green shirt, and people who were there remembered, they might have forgotten that detail, but as soon as you said something wrong, they would have said, wait a minute, you weren't. He wasn't wearing a green shirt. What else is he getting wrong? And so your credi credibility begins to be diminished. And lastly, the repetition of these stories within a community that had personal memory and a strong tradition of faithfully communicating all important events. Remember when, when Jesus was approached by, by people and they started talking about the tower that fell at Siloam? And Jesus was able to tell them not only what happened, but how many people were killed. And they would be able to communicate those events. They didn't have any newspapers, right? They didn't have telegrams. They didn't have internet. And yet not only was the story being talked about, but how many people died... And so Jesus was able to, and he, and he said, look, do you think those people were worse sinners than everybody else because the tower happened to fall on them? And he used that to talk about, I'm telling you the truth. If you don't repent, you too will perish. You may not get a tower hitting you on the head. You may not die in a dramatic fashion, but all of us are going to stand before judgment. And so you need to repent. And he used that story. Well, you had these, these stories within a community ...that had personal memory... ...and they would have been... ...they would have... ...not only just the stories about Jesus... ...not only the stories about his resurrection... ...and miracles and everything else... ...but all the things that were important in their lifetime... ...all the major stories... ...all the September 11th events... ...all the Challenger explosion events... ...they would have had in collective memory... ...and they would have expected... ...those who were teaching them... ...to be faithful in communicating them... ...to the next generation... ...because at that time... ...that was the only way... ...you could communicate those. Alright, we're going we're gonna to close up here. Um, I'm going to hang around... ...if anybody has some questions... ...because like I said... ...we're trying to abbreviate... ...and keep this to about an hour... ...or 45-50 minutes... ...but if you have any questions... ...I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hanging around... ...and I'm happy to talk with you... ...but let's just close up... ...with a word of prayer right now. Heavenly Father... ...in the name of Jesus... ...it is uh, sometimes a little bit overwhelming... ...to think that you have entrusted us to teach the story to the next generation. Lord, forgive us if we so rely on our devices and our smartphones... Uh, ...that we forget 
that what you are really asking us is that we need to get the word into our heart. Your word says, thy word have I hid in my heart. And Lord, I, I pray, Father, that your people would, would not only read, but would absorb it, would digest your word, would be able to communicate it. Lord God Almighty, that we wouldn't just have to pass people off to the, to the pastoral staff and to, to professional teachers, but Lord, that your people would take up the mantle of learning the gospel, learning the stories of Jesus, learning the truths that he communicated, learning the path of salvation and righteousness. And Lord, so each of us would be a vessel that's able to communicate that to our children, to our friends, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever you set us, Lord God Almighty. Let us be faithful witnesses, even as your early church, even as the first century church, were faithful witnesses. Let us be faithful witnesses, Lord of all that you have given to us to communicate to the generation behind us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.